you're on board a destroyer, which is not very big, and you got no place to run. You got to hold your position and, and hope to God that you don't get hit. Russell McClintock remembers well what it's like to take incoming fire aboard ship. He got a strong taste of that off the coast of North Vietnam 50-some years ago. That didn't discourage him from continuing his military service. He spent more than three decades in the Navy, from Vietnam through the first Gulf War and beyond. His military career, in part, was a means of honoring his father, Russell McClintock Sr., who was a gunner aboard a B-26 in World War II. Shot down over Italy and captured, he wound up spending a year and a half as a prisoner of war, a portion of that time struggling to survive the notorious Stalag 17B. The Sun was part of the final Honor Flight Chicago mission of 2023, and his presence on that flight was, in part, a means of honoring his father, who never had the same opportunity. Your dad was a flyer in World War II, yep. and you decided to go Navy. Is there a reason for that? I saw too much of the Air Force, that's why. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Besides, three hots and a cot, I liked the idea of going to sea and so forth. All the time that I had been with him and traveled around the world, had always been shore facilities. You know, uh, we were either in Nebraska, Texas, Georgia, Arizona, in England, or in the Netherlands. It was all shore duty, and the Navy sound neat. So I got into the, the Navy. And then when you got in, you had an interesting experience in boot camp. Right off the bat, what happened? Oh, uh, yeah, I was, I was on a far right-hand side of the company, and we were moving across the bridge going from advanced side to basic side. We needed to get over towards the curb, so the company commander told the guide arm, guide right, goddammit, guide right, get over there towards the curb. And the next thing I knew, I'm looking at the guy in front of me, I'm looking at his asshole rather than the nape of his neck, and I stepped in a storm train and I broke my right foot. The company commander come back there and he is chewing on my ass, get up off the goddamn ground, you know. The language was getting foul and so forth, so I got up and I'm hobbling, all right? And we made it to the, the barracks that we were going to. Happened to be the second floor, so I had to go up some stairs. You went upstairs with a busted foot. Yeah. Okay. The leather shoes that we had were called brogans. And I slipped that le leather shoe off and my foot just ballooned up. And he came over and he says, what are you doing? I said, trying to air out my foot. And he says... Is it all right? I says, I think it's broken. He says, well, can you stand? I says, no. He says, well, you got to go to sick bay. So he sent a couple of guys with me, and they chewed my ass. They got the chance to chew my ass all the way across the grinder over to the dispensary, which was a, a satellite of the main hospital that was on the main side. And, uh, my God, they drove me over. I didn't have to march over the bridge to get to sick bay. Well, so I get over to sick bay. And that bridge separated advanced from basic side. And you had to dress appropriately so that people knew who you were. You wore a ball cap if you were in basic. And you wore a white hat if you were advanced side. They had parked me in a, in a wheelchair out in the, like, 
like a lanai or something like that. And somebody came over and said, take that goddamn hat off. Put on your white hat. So I took my hat off and I put on my white hat. And then somebody come through and say, you take off your white hat and put your ball cap back on. And it was back and forth, back and forth. <laughs> I was getting yelled at. I got a broken foot. I can't go anywhere. And they're worried about what color hat I'm wearing. You know? <laughs> Welcome to the United States And then Navy. a four striper. <laughs> and being a four striper, he had a bad doctor. He came in and said, what are you doing here, son? I said, uh, I think I got a broken foot. Only you've been here a couple hours. He disappeared, and right away, here come a couple of corpsmen out there, and they pushed me in there, took pictures, and sure enough, I had a broken foot. But they couldn't do anything because my foot was all swollen up, and they checked me in, put me in a rack, and they waited until the swelling went down before they could put a cast on it. This extended your stay in boot camp then pretty significantly. Yeah, I think uh, like five weeks or something like that. And then there was a guy by the name of Ken Gross. He had a cast on his left leg, and I had a cast on my right leg. And we got in trouble for uh, racing down the patio between the Varrickses. Were you on crutches? <laughs> you were on crutches when you were doing that. Yeah, we're on crutches <laughs> and we're hauling ass. And we got pulled over for racing on our crutches. <laughs> and because of it, we had to go over to Regimental and sit on the, on the ground and hold these brass five-inch rounds out in front of us until we couldn't hold them up any longer. That, that was, was your our pu- punishment. That was your punishment. That was our punishment. We were in... A holding company for injured guys. <laughs> it was a it was a full company. The name of my company commander that uh, his name was BTC Boiler Technician Chief Billy Gann, and Billy Gann was came in to pick us up and find out who was going to be in his company as we were dropped out of there and and assigned to his company. He was a he wasn't very tactful. All right. Not too many of the company commanders back then were tactful. They were more aggressive than they are today. Today is more being nice and being and being firm, but, you know. How did he lack tact? Not so much on what he said, but how he said it and the colorful language that he used along with it. And they used methods back then that wouldn't use today. For example, a couple of guys caught smoking. You were allowed to smoke, but you only could smoke during certain periods of time. When you were washing clothes outside on a on a patio, you had these washing tables. They got caught smoking. There's no problem. You put a bucket over their head after they put about a half a dozen cigarettes in their mouth and light them all up, and the smoke would start boiling out from underneath the bucket. Wow. Yeah. That. Uh, all right. That's a technique that's not used today. I don't suspect. No. 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 <laughs> and <laughs> we got to stand around and watch what was going on and. All the laughing and jeering quit when the smoke started pouring out from underneath the bucket. But that was his way of saying, don't smoke. You were warned. You were warned. Don't smoke. Yeah, don't smoke. Well, you get on board. Eventually, you're assigned to the Goldsboro, USS Goldsboro, which is a... Guided missile destroyer. Right. Uh, I had a crew of about 180 guys. But between boot camp and there, I had gone to a couple of schools. I went uh, surface to air missile, and the school happened to be there in Bainbridge, Maryland, uh, which is also where all the female recruits went to, went to boot camp, and I got to meet a couple. Surface to air. Tell Sur- me about surface that. To, surface to air missile. Yes. The missile 
didn't have an attached uh, booster. It was all self-contained. It was called a DTRM, a dual thrust rocket motor. The uh, missile was uh, a damn good missile, and it had a, a seeker head on the front of it uh, inside this ceramic cone that was tr electrically transparent. And what it did is it attacked a target. When it launched from the, the launcher, the missile would determine where you could be at a future time. And what it do is it would run into the, the ship or the aircraft that you were firing at by leading it. And that's how it worked. It had a small continuous rod warhead, which was a, it had an explosive charge that was in the center. And then it had all these rods about a, a foot long and they were alternately welded together. So when they opened up, they broke apart and you had, I don't know, a couple hundred pieces of warhead, which were rod, that increased the chances of you hitting the target. Yeah, you have a wider range then. Yeah, because it opened up like a ring when it got <laughs> to so far, then it would break into individual parts. So you got a good bit of schooling then on uh, surface-to-air missiles, uh, a lot of the science that you then took and applied when you got on board the Goldsboro. Yeah, I had a lot of that information stowed away. A lot of it was bullshit information, but you gleaned enough information and understanding as to how the missile worked and how the launcher worked and uh, the, the, the different pieces of equipment that you used to control the, the launch of the, and tracking of the target and stuff like that. Well, when you're on the, you're on the Goldsboro, and when did you get choppered into the ship? Was that the Goldsboro you got choppered into? Yeah. So that was my first experience. So you're helicoptered in, and you're landing in the open sea. Yeah. Well, and it's a nasty weather day, right? The ship's doing this, and the helicopter's doing that. I didn't land in the sea, and then they had to pick me up. They were trying to put me on the ship. Normally, in smooth weather, they just lower you down. You'd step off and walk away, and you were part of the crew. But uh, Mother Nature was making it very difficult for me to become part of the crew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, then somebody had to grab your ankles and bring you down, make yes, sure you're going to yeah, land on the yeah. deck okay and not fly into the ocean. Well, yeah, that's true. So when you're when you're on the ship, are you bound then for Vietnam, for the coast off Vietnam at that time? Yes. Or was that, yes. All right. Yeah. So you know where you're going and what your mission is going to be. Well, it took me uh, probably three or four days to understand that I was in trouble. I'm going in to uh, operate off the coast of Vietnam. They picked my ass up. I guess they were going to put me to work right away. And we uh, turned around, went back into the Tonkin Gulf area off the coast of uh, Vietnam. Yeah. We know a good bit about war in the jungle and rice paddies, I think, but we don't know as much about the Navy operations off the coast. So when the Goldsboro gets there, you take fire from North Vietnamese batteries on shore. Yeah. They were sneaky. When we were down the coast... They had all these bamboo poles that were flowing, floating in the water, and initially we thought they were just markers for, for fishing. So then when we head back up to the up the coast, when we get close to one of those, they would shoot and come real close to hitting us, because they would use those like range, ranging. But after a couple of rounds, and we'd go into a hard turn or something like that, then they didn't. Didn't do too well in shooting at us. How far off the coast are you when this happens? 
I'd say it's from seven to 9,000 yards, okay? Not close enough to swim ashore and enjoy the beach, but close enough for being fired at by six-inch rounds, you know. So describe for me, if you would, what it's like when you're on ship and you're, you've got incoming fire. General quarters gets called, if not called, before that, it gets called right away. So it's a frantic race for everybody to get to their battle stations. Roll your sleeves down, button them up, button your collar up, pull your knit cap down over your ears and so forth, put on your sound-powered phones, plug it in to establish communications with other parts of the weapon system, either the computer room or combat information center, to get ready for incoming stuff, stuff and to shoot back at it. Usually, by the time you got all that stuff done, the immediate danger is over. So now you're in a, a war with, uh, it, it's still tense, but you're, the initial shock is over with. Now you're just trying to do your job so that the ship that you're on doesn't get hit and you stay alive. The initial uh, shock of being shot at, you always expected it to be happen, but until it happens, you don't really get the bile that runs in your system and... and the nerves and so forth, and there were there were times when I'm fine until it was over with, and then the shakes would start, you know. Because for me, being a mount, being above Mount Fifty Two back aft, and in the radar systems that we had back aft, you're up on top of the superstructure. There wasn't anything above you to protect you. you didn't have another deck or anything like that. That's where you are. Yeah. What's your What's your job? Actually, it was. Uh, radar operation and maintenance so i'm i'm in the last space the only thing above me is a radar antenna so i suppose being where you are you kind of feel a little bit more vulnerable yeah i'm not afraid to admit it i remember sitting at a a station our publications which were schematics and diagrams and so forth of the system were in pubs about so forth and i'd pull those off the shelf and I'd have one on my lap, I'd have one on my chest. <laughs> Added protection. Oh, goddamn right, man. I'm looking for anything to to hide behind. And for me, it was publications. It might have made it difficult for going through the pubs afterwards, but I wasn't worried about that. When when you were on the Goldsboro, did you take fire multiple on multiple occasions? Or was it I, just... I or- remember twice during that time that we took fire. One of them, uh, we took some hits that were above surface. There were air bursts, and we'd get hit with shrapnel. And, of course, everybody, you could hear that through the aluminum. And then uh, another time when we took a close hit, port start, this was a different time, port side aft above the screw guards. The screw guard was nothing but a piece of pipe that ran out over the side of the ship, and it was kind of like, protection of the screws that when you pull up next to a, a pier or something like that yeah they had to do, do repairs to the bulkhead down there but that was on a different occasion mm-hmm. so really on that time that was over there i remember only two occasions where we got shot at and hit all the other times were uh, splashes in the water but not close well when you were on board there were the times that you were hit by enemy fire uh, there was Minimal damage, is that fair to say? And no loss of life. No loss of life. Minimal 
structural damage. But the equipment, as far as the radars themselves, didn't get touched, so we were still operational. But we do know that uh, three years prior, because you're in, this is 1975, right, for you, do you think? 74, 74, okay. The Goldsboro gets hit, and there's significant damage. And, and a couple of guys died. A couple of guys died. Yeah. My gun target line is now 300.5. My range to the target is 19,450. This is radio traffic aboard the guided missile destroyer Goldsboro on the December night in 1972 when the ship engaged North Vietnamese shore batteries. It's the night when two sailors aboard the ship were killed by rockets launched from shore. Russell McClintock was not yet a part of the Goldsboro crew on this night, but the radio traffic is representative of the frantic under-fire moments that he would experience a couple years later. destroyer which is not very big and you got no place to run i mean you can't jump off and swim in the water so you got to hold your position on board the ship and and hope to god that you don't get hit so you're in close enough to fire you fire and then you get out of there as fast as you can yeah there were times when we would make a run and we'd go in closer to, to shore and we'd be doing 30 knots or something like that and then as soon as we detected that we were getting counter battery and so forth we do a hard port or a hard starboard to get away so run in throw some rounds and then get away as fast as we get, could get because, the hell out of there yeah because you're on board one of those destroyers man that that was your whole life uh, wrapped around you in, a, in an aluminum can After you take those those hits, it's over with. You get out of get out of the line of fire, and you go down and you get together with your mates. You know, do you talk to each other about what you're thinking? Or yeah, you... but but it's it's more bravado than anything else. Okay. I mean, everybody, unless there's nuts, are scared shitless when you're getting shot at. But you kind of are. You maintain your cool because you got a job to do. The job comes first. The emotional impact of what you had just been through doesn't creep up in the, until after you get out of the danger zone. You know, you go in there and you get out of the danger zone, and then you get the shakes or whatever. 
Do you still think about that every once in a while? Yeah. Do you? Yeah. That's a long time ago. It is a long time ago. A long time ago, but still, it's clearer in my mind the visual things around me in my workspace. You come so close to being a statistic, and you're just happy as hell that you made it through. And if anybody else were to get hurt, it's I'm glad it was him and not me. You know, some guys got hurt or got injured because of the the, the movement on board ship. They had either fall down, <laughs> stepped on, or something like that. It wasn't next. It wasn't from getting hit by shrapnel or anything. It was just the nature of the beast in the ship that we were on. You know. Well, you got that out of the way in boot camp. <laughs> yeah. When you Boy. Yeah. So you didn't have to worry about that again. You know, speaking of statistics, I didn't realize this, but. There were sixteen over sixteen hundred sailors who died, were killed in in combat in Vietnam, and over four thousand were wounded. And one of those guys indirectly was killed. He got hit by a turnbuckle. But he got hit in the head, and he went over the side. He disappeared. He never came up. He his, died. So his body was never recovered. Not from being shot at, but he was a, a victim of. The war, I guess you would say. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. doing something operational like that. How many years did you do in the Navy? 36 years and 10 months. That's a haul. And you did that for what reason? Well, towards the tail end, it was easier to re-enlist and get out and face the unknown. But uh, initially, I had committed myself through the STAR program to stay in for at least eight years. Well, if you made eight years, 20's not far off, okay? So you kind of stayed. By that time, you usually made it past E5, enlisted rank of E5. Once you got seven, eight years in and you pick up first class, E6, your life became better. You didn't do compartment cleaning you didn't do scrubbing decks you didn't do a lot of menial stuff so for many reasons things got easier as you got to be e6 and above while you were in the military was there any part of you in deciding to re-up that you would do so in a way to honor your father yeah my dad retired from the military but in the process of of getting there he went through what was then called battle fatigue. They had different names for it as time went by. Being a prisoner of war, raising cats for food, losing 60, 70 pounds when you're approaching 200 pounds, you know, come out weighing 135. Let's talk about your dad for a minute. Sure. He bears your name. He's Russell McClintock Sr. I bear his name. Yeah, Yeah. you bear his name. Sorry about that. (laughs) He's a flyer. He's in a B-26 Marauder. Right. And he's a gunner. He's a... Yeah. That's his job. It's a, a crew of five as best we, we Well, understand. a crew of six. Six. One guy died that was in the, in the uh, tail. All right. This is World War II or over Italy, and they're on a bombing mission, I'm presuming, right? Yeah. Okay. He was on his 11th mission. They were flying out of Sadrata, which was deeper in and away from the northern coastline of Africa. 
and they developed a special way to cut down their airtime before they could form up. They'd have six planes that would take off together. They make that run up there, and when they got shot down, they were over the north end of uh, Sardinia. I guess the ground fire and the the, the the flak and so forth was pretty heavy, and they got hit enough that uh, I think the left engine started to fail, blow white smoke and black smoke. Pilot makes the decision it's time to bail. Yeah. I guess what they did is it, it climbed and then reached a point where it couldn't climb anymore and then fell off into a dive. The pilot had the guys, let's get the fuck out of here. They went out one after another, and I'm not sure whether... I think Rihanna, being in the fantail, was one of the first to go out. And that's why those that followed were able to see him. Uh, right, this is the guy that didn't make it. He didn't make it. But but, but the other guys did. Well, my did. dad told me, I remember him telling me the, uh, one story that he Roman candled to the, to the rocks on the beach down below. And when he got picked up by uh, like an ox cart and then uh, picked up one or two other guys, they brought him to some sort of a, a station where they started to interrogate him and stuff like that. So he hits the ground, and is he caught right away then? These weren't friendlies who... He, no. All right, so they These caught These were him. Italian, but they were farmers, okay? Farmers with shotguns. Taken prisoner by Italians interrogated for a brief period of time by the Italians, turned over to the Germans. The Germans uh, interrogated him and then put him on a train to south-central part of the island. And then from there, flew them to a place a little east of Rome and put into an Italian prison interrogation camp. Spent a couple of days there and then they got turned over to the Germans and then they took them north into Germany and put them in prison camp. And then they go to Stalag 17B. I think that was his last his last uh, prison camp. And then they forced marched him with a bunch of other guys in, uh, or near Austria or something like that. Yeah, they, 17B was in Krems, Austria. So Krems, yeah. Yeah, they're there for, your dad is held as a prisoner of war for two years? Two I mean, years. More, I think mean, more like a year and a half. Okay, well, a long time. Yeah. Did, did he ever talk to you about his experience there? Did, did you know... Little fragments did, of information that I heard over the years that they raised cats for food. And a, a skinned cat reminded him of a, a skinned chicken when he got back. So he didn't have much for eating chicken because it reminded him too much of... Eating cats. a cat. Yeah, eating cats. Well, they weren't getting enough food from the Germans, so they were improvising. Yeah, they were trying to be as industrious as they could under yeah, the circumstances. And, you know, whether it's cats or whatever, that's protein, stuff that they needed to help. Now, was this, this is not stuff that your dad openly shared with you. You picked this up over a period of time. Right? Or did he sit down and talk well, to you about this? Well, when I was probably around 10-ish, I got for Easter a little chick. You know, they used to, they used to give chicks out or you'd buy them. And my dad says, 
when it gets to a certain age, then you can think about eating it, you know. So it was out in the backyard crowing, and my mom says, it's ready. So I went out, and I cut the head off and stuck it in a hot thing of water and, and was plucking it. And Mom cooked him for dinner. And when Dad came home, he says, what's this on the plate? He, he just come unglued. What he was looking at was World War II prison camp food. It upset him quite a bit. So it was a long time before we ate chicken again. Well, your dad had a very difficult time then, long after, because he's yeah. going through post-traumatic stress, now we call it, yeah. but battle fatigue. And what, what do you remember of him in terms of how he would react when those episodes would kind of overtake him and change his behavior? When we were Davis Mountain Air Force Base, Tucson, Arizona, early 60s, 61, 62, somewhere in that area, 63, I remember him sitting out back of the base housing with a double-sided razor blade. The razor blades with two sides on there. And he would make a small lance in his skin and his legs, and he would pop out pieces of flak in his legs that he'd been carried all those years. And what the... They had developed uh, like a white uh, protective cover around the piece of flak over time. And I remember during those, like that brief period of time, he felt comfortable about talking about some of his war experiences. That kind of triggered, you know, son, this happened or that happened or whatever. And being a young puppy, I'm listening to this and, you know, I just couldn't imagine what my dad went through at the time. He was a heavy drinker when he got out of the service. He was a heavy drinker while he was still in the service. They didn't know in the service that he was drunk. He was he was a functional drunk. So when he'd go to, to work at military base, whatever he was working on, he was partly stewed, okay? But they didn't know any better. I knew. I knew that when I used to come home from school and walk in the door, instantly when I walk in and he's sitting there, I knew he was drunk because his demeanor had changed. He was mean and abrupt when he had been drinking. When he was sober, he was an absolutely wonderful guy. But those times were few and far between. And those were times that normally he didn't go to work sober. He went to work drunk. Did you understand that then when you no. were a kid? When I got older and I got into the service and after I spent some time in Vietnam and so forth, looking back, I could say, no, I understand why he was like he was, okay? I didn't, I didn't agree with how he treated mom because she would take the brunt of it. She would step between him and me when he'd start to get really angry. She was protecting me. But as best you understand it, those actions, violent, abusive, were totally out of character for him before the war. Yeah. Yeah. He was a different person. The war made a different person out of him emotionally. That does not mean that he had a, a light childhood when he was brought up. He was brought up in a logging family. They went to work as young kids. He finished eighth grade. He never finished high school. He had to go to work. Family work. We went to work in the woods for a, a young guy to carry tongs on his shoulder over trees and stuff like that that were felled and drop them on and hook them and get out of the way so they could pull them up on a Washington loader. That's what he did. Hey, he was a logger as a kid. Yeah. 
Your son, Rusty, has done an extensive amount of research to learn more about his grandfather, your dad. Mm -hmm. Have you learned a lot from Rusty's research? Yes, I have. There were a lot of things that I didn't know about what he went through, what he did. He followed up to prove what was suspected with documentation and so forth that he had recovered so that this piece of information is true because here it is in the official record, that kind of thing. Missing action reports, other research that he'd done, the write-ups that he did to package it all together in story form. He's made an extraordinary effort to learn. Isn't it interesting that the son honors the father and the father honors his father? Well, how that how that continues. You, in a way, honored your father by going on the honor flight mission in October. Because he didn't get a chance to go. He didn't get a chance to go. And I don't know if he'd have gone. If it had been made available, I don't know if he'd have wander, relive that memorial or not. I don't know. When did he pass away? He was 54 years old, so he would have late 60, late 64. He was 54 years old when he passed away. Take me to the moment when you're at the World War II Memorial, and I know you got to be thinking about your dad when you're there, right? Yeah. What's going through your head about your childhood and your recollection as best you can construct it about your dad's service, what he went through. I think initially when I saw the World War II Memorial, how big it was. I was thinking, boy, I wish he could see this, you know. I think if he had gone, he'd appreciated the donations and everything that were put together to put that memorial together. Did you have, when you were standing there, maybe listening to the anthem and taps, and did you have any words with him? I felt him like he was there and that he was standing in line with me looking at uh, everything that was going on, but uh, I didn't have conversation with him. Let me ask you if your flight to D.C., did you feel at the end of the day that you had appropriately honored your father by going and also honored yourself, or did you feel sufficiently honored? Yeah, but it didn't really sink in until I got back to Midway. We got in there, and then it was one thing after another. We turned this corner, and here's all these people in in Navy uniforms, and turned another corner, and, you know, other branches of the service. I mean, there were a lot of people there in dress uniforms, both officer and enlisted, that were there to welcome us back. As we worked our way down to the luggage area, it was just like a crescendo that more and more people, the crowd kind of narrowed down so you could reach out and touch people on both sides. And then the frosting on the cake is this last turn I made, there was my family. They were part of the welcoming crew uh, when I came back, my family, and that was, Really neat to have them there and to know that they recognize my contribution to my portion of the two wars. And to know also that their desire to learn more about your dad continues to this day. Well, yeah, that's why he's always got his nose to the grindstone digging up, digging up stuff. 
Rusty is your chief researcher. Chief cook and bottle washer. He does <laughs> everything. And he does it well. Just so long as you provide him with three hots and a cot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you like that uh, three I do. hots and a cot. That's right? good. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Mac. Well, thank you. Okay. We hope you enjoyed today's Honor, Thank, Inspire episode. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors to support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.